What's up, what's up, Michael? What's up, Peter? Big dubs. Big W. Uh-huh. Uh, how's the, I see you're still working on the mustache. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how's it going? You know, tripping away at it. <laughs> One hair at a time. <laughs> we get a close-up visual. Yeah. <laughs> Gladly. Damn. Honestly, you know, obviously a failure, but better than I thought it would be. Yeah. It's you know, there's some real there's some real hair, so not like the little fine ones. Yeah. (laughs) How much longer are you gonna keep the experiment going? Well, I don't have to be part of white society for still a while, so I mean, there's no, I'm not offending anyone. I hope it's except, a except Anna. Oh yeah, what is Anna? I hope too. Anna, Anna, Anna thinks it makes me look like a real man. <laughs> she likes it. Eh? The mustache plays a, a a big role in the next episode. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, okay. Well, have, you, have you ever read that that book, Michael? We've talked about it on the podcast a long time ago, but. The mustache, I don't think by, so. Uh, Carrier, I think. No, he's a, he's one of, this is one of his earlier books, I think. It's but he's and he's like pretty big in France now. He's actually friends with a far right thinker named Camus, because they because they have, you know, thinkers on the right in France. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, I don't think he himself is on the right, but you know, he's he's good buds with this guy. He's, uh, I think he's just kind of like an existentialist writer. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this book, I think in the early 90s, maybe late 80s. Yeah, it was, called, I think it was called the, the Mustache. And it's about a guy who, beginning of the book, he's in the bath and he, he's looking at his reflection. He's like, he's looking at his mustache that he's worn for as long as he can remember and entertains the idea of shaving it off. And he, his wife is in the next room and he calls over to her. He says, what would you think if I shaved off my mustache? And she's like, yeah, give it a shot. So he does. And he comes out of the bathroom and she doesn't say anything. And he's like, okay, she's, she's like saving something good here. And then they go to their friend's place for dinner. And neither of his friends say anything either. And this is really weird because he's, this mustache is like, this is his face. Like, it's like the main feature of his, of his appearance is this mustache. And then he, they get back in the car to leave. And he says to his wife, like, okay, what were you doing? Like, did you tell them not to say anything? She's like, what are you talking about? He's like, they didn't say anything about my mustache. And she's like, what mustache? He's like, my mustache. He's like, you never had a mustache. So <laughs> the book is his, is his, like, confrontation with this sort of, like, abyss opened up by the, by yeah. the, the lack of the mustache. It, no one at his work res- responds to it either, and it sends him into this total crisis of like existential crisis Great because uh, it's like um the notion of like a positive feature that forms your identity which you know opens the way up to like the utter lack and there's a film that the same author wrote actually and the endings are different um mm. i haven't seen the love, 
Let me remember. Let me remember how the endings are different. Don't spoil the ending. No. Okay. No, it because is, the ending. It is interesting how they're different, though. Or, or the ending of the book is a great fucked up bizarre scene where he regrows his mustache and then he's in he's in the bathtub and he starts to shave it again and then just shaves his face off. Yeah, it's <laughs> fucked. <laughs> he's like that's blind. the end of the book. He's the flesh off of his face. So I wrote. Uh, the film is strikingly similar to the novel. The story evolves with the same unnerving tension, except at the very end, Carrera diverts distinctly from his previous writing. When our character finally shaves his face, he simply cuts his, the hair and rejoins his his wife in the bedroom. Seeing the change, she responds. Oh. She, she says, you've done it. It's nice. This acknowledgement appears to directly address the very traumatic kernel, which has sent his demand identity into disarray. It would seem this conclusion is a disappointing alteration from the novel, a kind of happy ending. However, the admission nonetheless strikes both the viewer and the man as strange. Has the wife finally dropped the act? Or did he indeed never have a mustache until his escape to Hong Kong? Does his does the flight does his flight create the very conditions from which he fled? The couple turns off the lights and goes to sleep. In the final shot, in the dark, the man opens his eyes. Again, doubt clouds his face. So that it's like continued. Even with the mustache, his his lack of identity is like reinscribed into it. Like, really nice. And then, uh, and then I just say, as a film adaptation, Carrere is unusually successful in manifesting radicalizing the conclusions of his novel. In his earlier attempt, the character is ultimately destroyed by his paranoid fantasy. This fits Zizek's description of the pervert, one who attempts to go to the end of their fantasy. In shaving deep into his face, our character seeks to directly access the traumatic center of his subjectivity. In the film version, the character's fantasy is ultimately sustained, and he is left in a state of critical self-questioning, which remains unresol unresolved. So he's a, he's in a hysteric in the film. Anyway, now that's pretty good. Cause, yeah, because we can definitely tie that into the uh, the loss of roots, and in this sense, and translation yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, that actually ties into. The or like the origins of identity, and also how the act of translation uh, manifests the kind of story as such beyond its the manifestations of its telling. He was always the subject of a loss, mm -hmm. with or without the mustache. Okay, um, welcome to to. <clears throat> Uh, welcome to Zizek and so on. Uh, I'm your host, Peter, joined by none other than, or joined by Michael and Will. How are you doing, guys? Good. Good. Uh, are, is, is Michael, are Michael and me hosts too? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm your co host. <laughs> <By> the <wingman. laughs> I'm the co host. Welcome Peter, to Peter and along so on. With, <laughs> along, with other, along with other equally important hosts, Michael and Will. <laughs> Wait, I was trying to reference. Don't don't why theory yeah, they go. I'm theory. your host. I'm your, I'm your host. I think first first off, I think we owe a, a, a resounding happy birthday to the big Z man. True. Happy it's birthday. Uh, he's last time we talked about how he was how he was an Aries. We're not going to rehash that point, but no. but he's nonetheless an Aries. It does hold. Would you still love me? Would you still hold me when I'm seventy four? 
you can knit a sweater by the fireside. <laughs> it only occurred to me the other day that he was 40 when Sublime Object of Ideology came out. Yeah, he's a bit older. Yeah. So uh so there's still time for you yet, Michael. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, there's like four years. <laughs> four years. And then it's four years for you to totally reframe the, the landscape of, of <laughs> Dude, contemporary to get philosophy. a to get a PhD in psychoanalysis and philosophy. You can get a sweater by the fireside, let's <laughs> go for a ride. I feel like maybe we could read one of the things that Agon and uh Agon and Frank Ruder. Four years ago, they wrote uh, 11 theses on, it was like a Jeopardy-style article to celebrate a completely arbitrary moment in somebody's life, Zizek's birthday. Okay. It's the best. I put it up every Yeah, year. they say, they say, with this text, we want to salute an absolutely arbitrary event in the life of one of the most important thinkers in today's world. The event is his 70th birthday. Almost everyone will immediately recognize the thinker we want to celebrate when we, as if we were his philosophical jeopardy, offer a number of highly subjective descriptions or theses of what makes him and his his work of what makes him and his work such a eulogy. Uh, one, he might be one of the very few thinkers in the history of philosophy who, at points, makes it even for his closest theoretical political companions almost impossible not to feel irritated or chagrined by some of the positions he claims and defends or unstrategic choices he has made. Depending on one's temper, these sentiments are produced quickly or rather late. One can rest assured that one will come to such a point. Very true. Very true. <laughs> uh, they, call him, they call him our own Hegel. In the cool. sense that I remember when he once called himself Hegel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. He's like, Hegel, I mean me. <laughs> yeah the other one is the other one is when he gets uh criticized for jumping all around the place and he's like you know that is the criticism that hegel got for the phenomenology of spirit not to compare mm-hmm. myself with hegel <laughs> <laughs> that was also that was also a point that really i thought was great in um that introduction to Zizek's ontology from adrian johnston in the introduction, he's talking about Zizek's, you know, the kind of incessant use of examples and like what the status of those examples are. Uh, he quotes Zizek by saying, I'm convinced of my proper grasp of some Lacanian concept only when I can translate it successfully into the inherent imbecility of popular culture. Then Johnson says, in terms of the general theory culture rapport informing his metho- methodology, Zizek's avowed preference for the Hegelian dynamic of tearing with the negative should be kept in mind here. Speaking of the Geist in its effective vitality, in the same paragraph of the phenomenology of spirit where the phrase tearing with the negative appears, Hegel declares that the life of spirit wins its truth only when in utter dismemberment it finds itself. In an identical way, the life of the Zizekian theoretical apparatus wins its truth only when in utter dismemberment of being fragmented into a seemingly disparate jumbrel into a seemingly disparate jumble of popular cultural examples, it finds itself as a system. That's fucking cool. Yeah, that's good, eh? Yeah. The pop culture thing really got exaggerated, though, hey? Like, when when you're reading through Zizek, I don't really see it as, like, this melange of pop cultural references. I think think to us, it it doesn't seem that... It's not that impactful, but I think in the context... uh, in the, the late 80s, early 90s, it was, mm-hmm. it stood out, especially mm-hmm. for academics, for mm-hmm. whom 
the example had to be some kind of you know pre-digested like reference to um the great works of western or like, art or like tradition. a table they always had to talk about tables yeah tables and hammers tables are big. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> chairs and yet today the Thank examples are yeah. opera and antigone <laughs> i think this is a great because we were thinking about what topic to do and i was reading absolute recoil and this chapter stood out as just like the perfect instance of like the of like the Jackian style analysis because it's got like you know intense ontological ruminations it's got this you know his stock example of wagner's operas and uh an unexpected trip into the into ancient chinese history and mm-hmm. then he sets into play all these ideas uh to explain the self-alienation of spirit and then he puts that into the realm of translation and then he finishes with a reference to gk chesterton and an, uh, an interpretation of christianity as the broken vessel it's it's brilliant stuff so yeah we're reading from absolute recoil from 2014 what year 2014 was it? yeah 2014 and uh the chapter is called uh, The Violence of the Beginning. It's actually a subchapter. We yeah, couldn't even read a whole chapter. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the wound, chapter three, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Michael was saying to me the other day that this is a, this is a sleeper for, for perhaps Zizek's greatest book. And I think it's definitely up there. Mm. I called every bookstore in Toronto yesterday trying to find it, but no one had it. Uh, you know, I found, I found a copy of this at a bookstore by my place. In New York, it was uh, heavily reduced for some reason. It was like eight bucks, and I, when I got home, I opened up the front cover and it had it. It was signed by Zizek. That's awesome. Damn. Why do you think it was reduced? Someone had scribbled in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't read it. They're like, "Oh fuck, someone wrote in this." <laughs> it's a it's an interesting book too because it comes right after less than nothing as a kind of as Zizek described it as kind of like he wasn't able to fully say what he'd meant in less than nothing and he and absolute recall was an attempt to say that mm. yeah he felt like he missed something which is the story of Zizek's output yeah each mm-hmm. one is is a, an attempt to yeah, <laughs> yeah say what he said before yeah <laughs> try again fail better right yeah so yeah this came out in 2014 and one of the interesting tidbits is that in this section, he proposes a reading of Antigone, where it'd be yep. interesting if somebody rewrote yeah. it. And then two yeah. years later, he rewrites it. He did. And we'll yeah, we'll do like an episode on idea. this one day. <laughs> we should. Because yeah. I haven't read the Antigone. I read it ages ago. I mean. Oh, that one? No, I have never read that. I've uh, read the I original read ages version. ago, yeah. That's I cool. Was he involved in the, in the actual production of it? I doubt it. I, I think he's. I actually think he played Antigone. <laughs> Zizek, yeah. Well, you know, when you when you're not you're not getting cast, you should write a role for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He begins with with saying how the examples he'd mentioned in the previous chapter, uh, which we're not going to get into. There are plenty here. Uh, were illustrations of his theoretical point that he's going to explore in this chapter of that the the notion that there's nothing prior to the loss. So he brings up immediately the the case of of India, where like of course there in India there's there's a vast complex civilization, but this was what he calls a, a heterogeneous mess that has nothing to do with what was later 
with what the later national revival wants to return to. Mm-hmm. And ex- you know, extrapolating that from the Indian context, uh, this is something that is coeval with modernity, with the modern nation state, is the notion of a of a revival uh, of past traditions. But Zizek is very yeah that the, out- that the origin of a country is nothing but the return to what it truly was before some exactly some loss some yeah. some side path and like you see that you know if you if you ever watch like I do uh, World War II documentaries you see this in like the the Nazi invention of a heroic German tradition that it was the you know instantiation of that itself never existed but in Nazi ideology or not like you see these kind of bizarre festivals where they have like medieval knights and pseudo traditional uh, folk dress and mm-hmm. celebrations of they have these festivals that are like they're like they're celebrating a totally made up past. Yeah, the donning Bavarian garb. Yeah, Zizek makes that point about one of the guys that stormed the capital that is wearing the the Viking helmet. Mm-hmm. It's the QAnon shaman. But that's a cool point because, like, the idea being that Vikings never wore the masks, yeah. the, the helmets yeah. with the horns on them. And again, to tie in um, uh, Wagner, because that's yep. the origin of that belief, that, yeah, that yeah. myth. And, and this is true of origins as such. Well, let's, the, let's just stick on, the, on that, the loss regained by national identity. Zizek says that the process of, re- of its revival of a nation in becoming experience its present constellation in terms of a loss of precious, precious origins, which it then strives to regain. In reality, however, there were no origins that were subsequently lost, for the origins are constituted through the very experience of their loss and the striving to return to them. So this idea of, like, of a loss that you strive to return to, but a loss that is created out of that striving to return to it, which he examples in... Uh, the ancient Greek mm-hmm. uh, miracle, he says. I think he's quoting Hegel here when he, he's describing the situation of ancient Greece. Isn't mm-hmm. I think it's mm-hmm. a Hegel quote. Yep. He says that certainly they, they certainly received the substantial beginnings of their religion, culture, and social relations, more or less from Asia, Syria, and Egypt. They have so very much obliterated the foreign aspect of this origin, transformed, elaborated, reversed, and made it so thoroughly different that what it is they, as we value, recognize and love in recognize and love in it is essentially their own. They have, so to speak, ungratefully forgotten their foreign origin. So that's interesting. A, because usually ancient Greece, in the context of like Western philosophy, Western culture, is seen as like this co- coherent origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, think about like in, yes. in Heidegger's terms, for instance, the originary beginning. You know. So the ancient Greeks who form the eternal referent of a source, uh, a wellspring of an authentic beginning, was itself the product of foreign origins, which were forgotten and remade. But what's key for this idea is the ungrateful nature of this forgetting, the severing from an apparently authentic tradition. But Zizek says that that this this severing, this forgetting, was was renaturalized, i.e., like they kind of missed the the true. Uh, impact of the potential of this forgetting or the or the originary loss by renaturalizing it in the form of their art. So mm-hmm. in sculpture, for instance, what was the name of the? Was it Argus? That was the return of the pr- repressed with the series of eyes. Yeah, that's cool. 
But that is an uh, interesting idea that the repressed origins in the, in the Greek tradition are for Hegel the the fatal flaw of classical Greek art, mm-hmm. in that there's no subjectivity in it. Yeah, but then he. I mean, it makes sense with with Greek philosophy, right? Because like, if you think about the forms, that it's an attempt to kind of subtract uh, messy human experience from mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. truth of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like the recurrent theme in this essay is that there's an er something, right? So, like, if that in your in your example, Pete would be the, the forms of the er text. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's nice. That's really nice. And that and that they exist beyond in its kind of like original state. Mm-hmm. That the texts are always a kind of corruption right. of, whereas the, the yeah. complete reversal is what Zizek is is going to move mm-hmm. towards, where they are only manifested through their imperfect manifestations. Yeah, right. So, like, if forms participate, that's a kind of translation where its essence is still preserved. Well, hmm. now I'm wondering then, how this, how, how Homer would relate with this, right? Because Homer, they, they, they don't know who he was. If you even, even he was a person or people, uh, and yet he is, his writing is the kind of foundation of, you know, self-identity myth. I think uh, the point isn't that, that he, that he wouldn't have formed the, the basis of it, but that Greek culture and art and whatever, itself came from the the same loss that he's trying to bring to the contemporary political order too mm-hmm. and this is kind of he politi- he politicizes this this idea or he brings out the political aspect of it by sh- showing the kind of the danger of universality without that essential wound that loss yeah 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 um, which he describes as like this the standard liberal myth the the universality of human rights which establishes the conditions for peaceful coexistence between a multiplicity of of, of particular cultures. So Zizek says that from a properly dialectical perspective, we should strive for or endorse the necessity of the exact reverse of this approach. The wound as such is liberating, or rather contains a liberatory, liberatory presential. So while we should definitely problematize the positive content of the imposed universality, i.e. the particular content, its secret privileges, we should also fully endorse the liberating aspects of the wound to our particular identity as such. There is a loss, but it it's never one that can be fully yeah, and it's a, or fully accounted for and like returned to. And the pro, but even it goes even further because the notion that there's a coherent origin is a product that comes out of the loss. Is a product of the loss also. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. I mean, I return to something that isn't lost. Right. Yeah. Like. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, like, what what is the, lost it, only emerges in that moment. Mm-hmm. For people who lived in a in a small town in Germany in the Middle Ages, they didn't think, "Look at this great Germanic tradi- Germanic tradition we have." I mean, there wasn't such a thing as Germany, but in but in the Nazi uh, revival of these of these things, it's all used to make this to make this claim that look at this thing that we lost, look mm-hmm. at the, look at what we really are. But he does use uh, uh, ancient Chinese warring states as an example of this. How about that? Yeah, um, that part was a bit. Lost on me. I think. I mean, ba- basically, the point is that there was one warring state over another, establishing their regime, and a a breaking with with past forms, which they thought was a practice to be emulated. Exactly, like the ignorance of past forms and old traditions opened the way for the changing of the coordinates of the situation, and to accept that that there's a kind of ungroundedness in tradition. As Zizek says, the disintegration of old habits forms the opportunity for a new order. There's a reversal. 
Yeah, a reversal of the Confucian belief that proper action and order relies on maintaining tradition. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's the the eradication of the life world or a particular cultural situation uh, forms a kind of wound, but that wound is itself the the register of the universal. Uh, the wound is, of course, in relation to spirit. Um, Jesus writes, uh, the spirit is itself the wound that it tries to heal. That is the wound that is self-inflicted. Spirit at its most elementary is the wound of nature. Subject is the immense absolute power of negativity. The power of introducing a gap or cut into the given immediate substantial unity. The power of differentiating, of abstracting, of tearing apart and treating as self-standing what in reality is part of an organic unity. Mm -hmm. The wound, let's say the loss of some tradition, the loss was necessary for this new dynasty to manifest itself. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what that's what uh, Marx is talking about in the Communist Manifesto, too. Like, mm-hmm. the, yeah, the eradication of older traditional ways of being for the creates the proletariat, which f- is formed out of this loss, but also then becomes the the universal category and the, the grave diggers. You know, there's loss yeah. in that. Right. But the uh, man, his his digging into this notion of spirit is like Zizek at his most kind of mm-hmm. analytic best, I think. Hegelian, yeah. It's it's serious shit. Yeah, he's talking about the self-alienation of spirit. Uh, so he says that this gap or cut into the given immediate substantial unity, the power of differentiating, of abstracting, of tearing apart and treating as self-standing what in reality is part of an organic unity. This is why the notion of self-alienation of spirit is more paradoxical than it, than it may appear. It should be read together with Hegel's assertion of the thoroughly non-substantial character of spirit, that there is no thinking substance, no thing which also thinks. Spirit is nothing but the, but the process of overcoming natural immediacy, of the cultivation of this immediacy, of the withdrawing into itself or taking off from it, of why not alienating itself from it. The paradox is thus that there is no self that precedes the spirit's self-alienation, the, process, the very process of alienation generates the self from which spirit is alienated and to which it then returns. Basically, you know, he's saying spirit is the wound of nature. It's the, it's the tearing apart of the organic unity of nature. Uh, and in its differentiating and its abstraction, spirit becomes self-alienated, which is, you know, it's a complicated notion. There's a lot to that, but like, he wants to draw attention to how there's nothing substantial from which spirit is alienated, no fundamental yeah. X. Spirit is itself the movement of overcoming natural immediacy, the alienation from immediacy. Uh, this process is the very generation of the self from which spirit is alienated and to which it then returns. Yeah. You know, the X comes to, comes to be through the repeated failure to reach it. And I was just thinking, because it's very complicated, right? But like referring to that last episode, it's the the self here is the alienation from nature, the coming into mm-hmm. being of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Yep. But there is nothing lost prior to it. It only emerges retroactively. So like when people yeah, talk about objects are like the lost object, it only exists retro- retroactively, just like these origins of the lost roots. Yeah, this this yeah, theme persists throughout this thread, and that a movement like the movement of spirit can only, like it can only move if something is lost, but it it's not a, a specific loss from like something that was previously whole 
in order to move at all, there's like a kind of undermining quality to the way that spirit moves. Yeah, that's the dynamism, right? And this is, you know, again, to return to, to uh, what Matt was saying, you know, the negation of the negation is another way of describing this process. Mm, mm. Like you the, negate what is given, you know, mm. that's the state of being as it is. And then you negate even that realization itself. Yeah, it's a kind of like it's an absolute negativity that that can't be reunited into an original unity with its other. So like the law, even the loss of the origins are lost. Yeah, so he says the loss nothing, is lost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if yeah, if it was a simple, if it was just negation, then there would be the loss of the origin. But it's also that there was no origin that was even lost. In yeah, because a substantial of, yeah, yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because then you would be dealing with if it was just the case of the of the original, then that's that's unal that's an un, unalienated uh, status. Yeah, um, I mean, because mm-hmm. because I would say that the liberal belief is one of just negation, and this is why the cultural notion of alienation is that it's bad, right? Mm-hmm. That we have to we have to de-alienate, unalienate. That that if if only we could be more fully ourselves, then we would, you know, be happy or be more comfortably exist in the world. Yeah, but what Zizek and you know Hegel are saying, like the alienation is essential against this against this notion that there's that the alienation is a bad thing. That's there's something to overcome. That like the alienation forms the is the origin of of the subject and the spirit. And that true universality uh, incorporates this negativity into itself mm-hmm. as a political starting point. I mean, this was this was cool too because he didn't use this word, but like there's a there's a parallax here. He says that there's a, a shift of pers- perspective which makes the wound itself appear as its opposite, that the wound itself is its own healing when seen from another standpoint. Mm-hmm. And you can see this on the level of subjectivity. Like if you if you conceive of, of alienation or the self-alienation of spirit as as a wound, from another standpoint, it constitutes the feature of the universal and the, the transcendental subject. The loss is generated of of a a universal category. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, a universal category that's not that is not a series of kind of positive attributes. Yeah, that's what that's what Todd says. Like yeah. the, you know, like sharing what we don't have. Like we share the loss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is also true of the en- a subject's entry into language as such, right? That it is a traumatic encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the violence of beginnings, a, right? There's a German guy. Okay, that's probably good. But this introduces the broken vessel, right? Which was important to what you were saying earlier, Will. Yeah, the broken vessel uh, is something that he gets from. It's always a it's always a a question how you're supposed to pronounce this name because if you say Walter Benjamin, you're saying the first one first word in English <laughs> and then the second one in like a fake German accent. That's true. If you, say, if you say Walter Benjamin, you sound like an idiot, and then if you say Walter Benjamin, you sound like an asshole. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're damned so if you say, do, and you're damned if you don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, the norm the norm seems to be to just say Walter Benjamin. I'm sure Jake Icon- will have some sort of correction when he hears us say it. The task, it's his essay, the iconic essay, the task of the translator. And this is interesting too. I don't really have much to say about it, but like Walter Benjamin is like a constant reference of Zizek's. Like, yeah. He's he's one of he's really one of the main references I think mm-hmm. that sustained through like all of his work. I mean the whole the whole book violence is basically a riff off of uh, Walter Benjamin, mm-hmm. divine violence. 
another man with a, a failed entry into the academic system who had to do it all from the outside. Yeah. And, you know, his taste in art aside, this is a good, <laughs> this is a good essay. Um, <laughs> Nice. You know, he, he uh, tried to kill himself with morphine, right? And then apparently just had like an, an agonizing protracted death. Shit. There is also a theory that he was like arrested by the Gestapo and killed. Yeah. Zizek's condensation of this essay is on this notion of of um fuck, what was it? Uh broken vessel. Uh he Zizek says, just as fragments of a vessel, in order to be articulated together must follow one another in the smallest detail, but need not resemble one another. So instead of making itself similar to the meaning of the original, the translation must rather lovingly and in detail in its own language form itself according to the way of signifying of the original and to make both recognizable as the, as the broken parts of a greater language, just as fragments of the broken, ves- of the broken parts of a vessel. Uh, which is a very beautiful... Uh, rendering of translation and it's also very different i think than what people typically think translation is which is mm-hmm. just the the bare kind of one-to-one or as best you can uh converting of one language into another mm-hmm. and the idea that you can that when more when newer translations come out they're closer to the original they've they've accessed something more yeah, true because like, about it. like, yeah, everyone's everyone's familiar with like the notion of like a a a bad translation and like a you know a better translation, but I think what that misses is what Zizek is trying to point out here is like the translator's work has to remake the original brokenness of the primary text, so it's not about restoring the translated text to the unity of the pr- of the primary text since there's not a unity there to begin with so like what what translation lays bare is this original loss and it it becomes obvious in the way that a translation fails uh like it's in in translation there's like an inherent inability to return the text to this sense of completeness of the original language and that that kind of mo- movement like speaks to the original loss at work in the original text Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I wanted to say. Actually, the double meaning of the word original of the of the original there. There's like there's the original in terms of a text if you're thinking about translation, but then there's kind of like an originary loss also. I don't know if that's an interesting point, but well, that makes sense because like a bad translation produces a sense of there being like some kind of pure original text. Yeah, and a good translation produces some kind of universality exactly yeah the, the, a brief aside that i wanted to pursue here uh jesus writes pertaining to to ben benjamin the movement described here by benjamin is a kind of transposition of metaphor into metonymy um instead of conceiving translation as a metaphoric substitute of the original as a process of rendering its meaning as faithfully as possible both the original and its translation are posited as belonging to the same level as parts of the same field in the same way that for levi strauss the main interpretations of the oedipus myth are themselves new versions of the myth i thought that was interesting referencing levi strauss there where like uh he calls them a a, a bundle of relations that you kind of 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 all the iterations of the myth they become moments in the greater myth like the myth is itself 
something other than its than its manifestations in that there can always be another one written but is only ever kind of like manifested through them this is the structuralist point about yeah. about uh language languages and languages and language in general there's languages in the sense of you know french german english whatever but then there's also language in general and translation i think has something to do with language in general whereas we think tend to think of it as language languages i have a i have a fun well, anecdote if you guys want sorry just be- before we get to that uh can you just put a pin on that quickly because uh, i had a little fun thing here regarding Le- levi strauss mm. Uh, when I what just as a refresher, I went to the Wikipedia article about his his views of of myth. Shamelessly. And the first the first paragraph is in structural anthropology. Claude Levi Strauss, a French anthropologist, makes the claim that myth is a language. Through approaching mythology as language, Levi Strauss suggests that it could be approached the same way as language can be approached by the, sa- the same structuralist methods used to address language. Thus, Levi Strauss offers a structuralist theory of mythology. And the citation there, the little one besides that, that comment, it, the citation is Zizek, which I thought very was nice. interesting. He's That's the first nice. reference in that article. And then uh, just basically uh, Levi Strauss breaks his article or his argument down in three main parts meaning is not isolated within a specific fundamental myth but rather within the composition of these parts although myth and language are similar categories language functions differently from myth language and myth exhibits more complex functions than any other linguistic expression from these suggestions he draws the conclusion that myth can be broken down into constituent units these units are different from the constituents of language finally unlike the constituents of language the constituents of a myth, which he labels mythemes, function as bundles of relations. I had an, an instruction in this uh, this problem of translation IRL, where I was having it was on my birthday actually, and I was having I had an argument with four, three or four other people, all of whom spoke multiple languages, anywhere from like two to two to four to five languages, and I've I of course only speak English. So like in terms of like kind of the worth of translation. Uh, they didn't accept the point that I was trying to make about how translation is not just a degraded form of the original, which is what they thought. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a paradox in the sense that in their in their knowledge of multiple languages and in their ability to compare the quality of one translation against another tra- against the original, it gave them the belief that there is such a thing as as the primacy of the original. Like it was like the original was a concrete and unchanging text, which because it could be read in the original was was therefore fully comprehended. Mm-hmm. Interesting uh, though, even if that was not, but like, is, can it be fully comprehended if that's not your first language? And also, fully, can it? But can be can it be fully comprehended if it's if it's in your first language? I mean, yeah. that's like the yeah. whole realm of interpretation. You you don't just mm-hmm. you don't just yeah. immediately understand a text because you can read it. Yeah. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but what the, the quote that you mentioned before, Peter, I think is like perfect for this is like Zizek says that instead of conceiving of translation as that meta- metaphoric substitution of the original, it's a process of rendering its meaning as faithfully as possible. Both the both the original and its translation are posited as be, belonging to the same level. Uh, the, and he goes on to say that, that the gap that in the traditional view separates the original from its always imperfect translation is thus transposed back into the original itself. And that's mm-hmm. the Hegelian move, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a language for it at the time, but 
the you know the point that if I could I, I would have made was that there is the inconsistency or the loss of cohesion is there in the original too. So he says that a good translation will thus destroy the myth of the original's organic wholeness, rendering this wholeness visible as a fake. And I wonder if there are, there are instances in which like the the translation is actually better than than the original. That might be. I don't, I don't know if there are, but yeah. And everyone's like, "Dude, you're an idiot. You only speak one language. Like, you can't, you can't get this." Actually, you know, I'll just sorry. Just what came, what came to mind was, uh, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed it, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, "I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all. I shall tell you all." If one setting a pillow by your head should say, "That is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all." Anyway, sorry, it just came to mind. Yes, Elliot. Well, that's good too because I think there's something to that, like yeah. the original intent. Like those who try to, you know, to squeeze the universe into a ball, try to like completely access the original, uh, mm-hmm. can encounter the the absence in the original, right, where Lazarus says, "That's not what I meant at all. That's not it at all." Anyway, I'm I, I'm, a, probably, I'm probably grasping at straws there, but I thought no, that's nice because that that's always been a. Uh, part of that poem that that really impacts me is the the repetition of that phrase that's not what i meant at all and that's like translation in terms of like the translation of like of like desire too you know there's like the 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 fully coherent message of of someone's desire is never is never presented to them so there's always this kind of like failure of expressing it the hysterical the, question the, yeah the, and i think that's a hysterical moment like that's not what yeah. I, that's not what i meant that's not what i meant at all I, uh, regarding translation, uh, somehow accessing the true original text or like that the translations themselves are not true to the text. Uh, what that's the funny thing that came to mind when reading that was, uh, Casino Royale, James Bond book and films where you get the original book, um, by Ian Fleming. And then the first iteration of Casino Royale is a Woody Allen film from 1969, which is a farce, but it still follows the basic plot of the book. There's, you know, there's a casino, there's there's a, a woman named Vesper, there's James Bond, uh, but he's just kind of an idiot. And then, of course, the first Daniel Craig film, Casino Royale, which of the three is probably the best. But like, if you were if you're abiding by this notion of translation being somehow a flawed instantiation of the original, uh, the, the true, the true work itself would be the Ian Fleming version. Uh, huh. yeah. Because for Zizek, I think there's as, as much, as much as there is a way in which a, an interpretation can, can access, you know, the original loss or like the, whatever of a particular instantiation of it. I think that like, there's also like a timeliness mm. involved in that. Mm. So, you know, cause he will say that there is to fully understand Kant, it's kind of required to come after Kant in a way we can understand Kant more now than, than we could have understand Kant at the time. There's that aspect of like, you know, maybe retroactivity or at least on, you know, untimeliness in this yeah. sense. And, or like in the Hegelian, it's like owl of Minerva sense. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Also sure. like, just, sorry, just to return to James Bond, uh, in terms of like how to understand James Bond, you need to take all of it into account. You can't reduce it to like, Oh, the true James Bond is Sean Connery or the best James Bond is, is 
you know, Thunderball or whatever. I mean, those are both true, but that James Bond as like a mythic character, one might say, you like exists in the continual manifestations of him. He's a, he's uh, a broken vessel. Yeah. And it's also interesting in terms of like the next James Bond, like, cause they haven't decided yet. Like who is James Bond? Is it Idris Elba? Is it, you know, Tom Hardy? Who is the real James Bond? Everyone asks. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Mm. Like Dr. actually Hurt. fun fact, fun fact, like Dr. fun fact about, uh, the producer, I think his name is Alfred Broccoli, yeah, uh, who produced originally produced James Bond, whose granddaughter still produces it. Something broccoli. The uh, family gained their wealth from the invention of the broccoli. Kind of a fun fact. The, br- the, the breeding of broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> what do we owe James Bond to? The broccoli. <laughs> the core of James Bond is the. <laughs> Is the all the different iterations taken as a as like a a total? Each broccolo. <laughs> so you're saying that you're saying think, that James, sorry that James Bond wins to his truth only being radically torn <laughs> asunder in yeah. Timothy Dalton and Roger Moore and yeah. Sean Connery and Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, there is no James Bond other than like like the continual the failure to fully be James Bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Because like even James Bond, you know what uh, what many people see as like as like the true James Bond, Sean Connery was was a Scottish guy. Like he wasn't mm-hmm. even like mm-hmm. he wasn't even this you know upper class Scottish guy wearing a wig. But he's like the character James Bond is a kind of amalgamation of all the previous parts of him. Except here, Daniel Craig, is, I have a quote here that perfectly ex- that perfectly explains this. Um, Jizek says. What we should rather do is locate the traumatic point, the antagonism that remains untold and around which all the variations and fragments circulate. So like James Bond is this tr- is this antagonistic figure of which none of the variations are the true form, but yeah. all around which all of them circulate as fragments. And some, there's something kind of off about all of them. Like, you know, Daniel Craig doesn't really look the part exactly. And there's no, there's like crucial elements missing from it. And obviously like the universal how... is the 007 in James Bond. I just, you exactly. Know, like, <laughs> like, what the hell? The continuity of James Bond is not in the particular actors. It's in the signifier 007. That's why they can have all these different yeah. iterations. There is something benefited, of course, that James Bond, the film is a translation of the book. And when they lose the book as a reference, it kind of goes off the rails. But Zizek mm-hmm. has that example. I forget which one it is, but where he says that like the AL doctor, sorry, the, the movie, the movie yeah, AL doctor. Okay. Yeah. So like, what's the movie called? Can't remember. So I fucked it. Will hasn't read El Doctoro, neither of you, but you guys are the morons for having not read one of the <laughs> I've never even heard of him. Zizek said he saw this movie and he was like, oh man, this this movie is based on a book which must be way better than the movie. And he went back and read the book and he realized that the movie the movie was actually a better version than the book was. Mm. So like it's a movie that we all going know. Back to the, going back to that like translation, which might be actually improve on the original mm-hmm. i like that i yeah. like that idea or uh i was watching the godfather the other night there's no way the book is better than the movie <laughs> but then he i mean he so this is like this concept of the broken vessel i think is very elegantly transposed in the into the figure of christ by zizek 
in the in the in the seven last words of Christ, uh, we get a shout out to one of Zizek's former publications here. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, is it finished? It's going on a little bit long here. Uh, Father, in your hands, I commit my spirit. So like as a monologue, this doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. But they're all claimed to be the last words of God by, you know, by, by Luke and uh, John and Mark and uh, Jez. So we get the we get the kids version from Mel Gibson, which just presents it as like a, as like a monologue. But Zizek says that we should see them as a synch- synchronous alternate versions, which are in a way all true. And their truth does not reside in a single narrative or in conceiving the seven versions as fragmentary remainders of a consistent single original. It resides in the way that the seven versions resonate among themselves, interpreting each other. And that's what you were saying about James Bond. Like mm-hmm. there's like there's a resonation between all of the all of the versions uh, that don't gesture to a single consistent original, but each version interprets yeah, each, James each other version. James Bond only wins to his truth only in utter dismemberment. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm glad we insisted really on cool. the James Bond part because I thought there was something there. <laughs> no, it's totally something there. But this is really cool because, and this is you know, this herein lies Zizek's like interpretation of Christianity that at its most radical, he says, conceives the act of breaking itself as the instance of divine creativity. So that even in, you know, in terms of like the unitary God figure is itself instantiated in three forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, so maybe he, those three, maybe those three forms are, you know, a translation. Uh, he brings, he brings up his, his old boy, GK Chesterton, who says that, it is the instinct of Christianity to be glad that God has broken the universe into little pieces. All modern philosophies are chains which connect and fetter. Christianity is a sword which separates and sets free. No other philosophy makes God actually rejoice in the separation of the universe into living souls. And this goes back to that phrase, the spirit is the wound that it, that mm-hmm. it's, spirit is its own wound, the wound that it heals. Like this fragmentation, this wound forms the, the condition of of freedom. Well, I think that sums it up nicely. Anything else that we want to add to it? Well, just one. I mean, one more line that where Zizek ends it, I think, is brilliant. Where he says that in Christianity, the broken vessel is not only the created reality which fell from God and lost its perfection. The ultimate broken vessel is God Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should thus be conceived as three fragments of the vessel whose unity is forever lost. So go out, volunteer at your local church, contribute. <laughs> But I think that's, I mean, it's a, it's an amazing idea that this idea of bringing a, a corruption of the original in the same, into the same level as the, as the source, as the original. Mm. Also how like the gospels were spread um, by Peter in Greek, like Greek is the first language of the Bible. Very nice. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, this joke, Michael, that Jesus is on the cross. And he's he's saying his last words, and all of his disciples are there. He's 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 speaking in a whisper, and and he, they can hear him say, "Peter." And Peter goes closer. He's like, "Yes, my lord. What is it? What is it?" And Jesus, almost saying, "What is it? What is it, Lord? I can't hear what you're saying." And Jesus speaks a little louder, and he says, "Peter, Peter, I can see your house from up here." 
Nice. All right, lads, it's, it's been fun. Yeah, that was it was nice, nice chatting. Um, thanks everyone for listening. This is a Patreon episode, so thank you for being a patron. Um, also, three years of the podcast. Uh, it's been real. Thanks to everyone yeah. for listening over three years. Thank you.